We're going to do things a little uh, differently here this morning. Uh, we're going to do what we, what we used to call when we, when we planted ourselves back at the theater, we used to call a numchuck sermon. Um, that is, I'm going, to, I'm going to open the word with you for uh, a few minutes, and then, then we'll have a special music and take the offering. And then uh, Bill Sheravelli and James Pond will come up and, and update you on our partnership in, in the uh, sex trafficking uh, relief that's going on in Cambodia. Uh, but Ken did want me to, to share a little bit out of the Word with you this morning. And, uh, and the topic I, I've chosen really needs no justification, but I'm, I'm going to tell you why, why I chose to speak on it anyway. Uh, just kind of why in my own mind this is what I need to talk about today. Um, part of that justification is just the calendar. Um, I don't know how many of you went to a Mardi Gras party Tuesday night, but we are in the season of Lent now. Uh, Wednesday was Ash Wednesday, and so for much of the Christian church, we're in the period that leads up to celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, much as the Advent season leads up to Christmas. Do I need to put this closer or something? Is that what's I'm kind of going in now? How's that? Okay. The uh, second reason for talking about the resurrection of Jesus is because Pastor Ken has been talking for the last few weeks about uh, truth and justice. And, and truth is very important to us, truth being when, when our beliefs match the reality. And arguably the most important truth, not just to Christianity, but in the universe in which we live, is that this is a world into which God entered himself, died on our behalf, and then conquered sin by raising Jesus from the dead. It's the most important truth. Um, it also grounds all this justice that we talk about. That is the reason 4,000 people can come together from all over the world to talk in Portland, Oregon about justice at a conference that was just incredibly well organized by folks from this church. The reason people can give their lives to writing injustices around the world is because of the same thing, that we live in a world in which God himself came down lived a perfect life and died on a cross, and then by his power conquered death by, by raising Jesus from the dead. Um, and, and so that grounds what James Pond is doing in Cambodia, and which you'll hear about in, in the second half of this numchuck sermon. Um, but there's another reason that's, that's more local and personal, um, and that has to do with... Uh, Jim Wilkins, the chairman of our elder board, and his wife Sharon received the news a week ago last night that their oldest son, serving in the Air Force in Eastern Africa, and, and three of his fellow officers went down in a plane. And, and they spent the week going back to the East Coast to receive his body and, and are very grateful of all the... the emails of encouragement that, that you, their brothers and sisters, have sent them and are incredibly comforted by, by God and by uh, the support of their, their brothers and sisters here and around the world. Uh, as far as I know, the, the local memorial service won't be until sometime in late March. But the reason the Wilkinses can go on in the face of such... Uh, such suffering and sorrow 
is the same thing I'm going to talk about this morning, and that is that we live in a world in which God himself took upon himself all of our sins and made it possible for us to, to have new life and, and that everlasting. Um, so all of this comes together in the, in the very central tenet of Christianity, which is that Christ Jesus, having died on a cross, was raised from the dead. And that, by extension, we who are his followers and who accept his atoning death on our own behalf will likewise be raised to everlasting life, to new life, and, and eventually be given glorified bodies. So if, if you've got a Bible and you want to you hang with me as much as possible, we'll be in 1 Corinthians 15 the most. I'm going to skip around and, and not really even uh, spend any time on a lot of other passages of Scripture. Um, if you're worried that I'm making Scriptures up because I don't spend enough time there, then just write them down and go home and be like the Bereans of Acts 17 and, and make sure that, that what I'm saying is really there. Um, so I'm not going to ground the context of everything I share with you this morning because I've got too much to share. And so I'm just going to say what the scriptures say and, and you can uh, make sure I was saying the right thing. You know, by the way, um, I, I do get to preach to you every once in a while, but it's invariably when our numbers are small because of some predictable event, in this case the Justice Conference. That's so that if I say something wrong, there'll be less damage control needs to go on. So the first thing I just want to say, from 1 Corinthians uh, 15, a letter from uh, Paul to the, the church at Corinth, is that for Paul, the resurrection of Jesus is, is what our entire faith, this thing called Christianity, following Christ, hangs upon. And, and, and he says it very clearly in verse 17 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Uh, he goes on in other places to say that, that if, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, then we of all people, those who call ourselves followers of Christ, are most to be pitied. What we do, coming together on Sunday morning even, let alone sacrificing ourselves in lifelong pursuit of justice around the world, that's silly, absurd, futile, unless Jesus rode bodily, rose bodily, bodily from the dead in in actual history. But let's look at uh, the beginning of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, uh, where Paul is reminding the, the church at Corinth of what he had preached to them a few years earlier. And, and here he's saying this is the essence of the Christian faith. And, and let's read together, uh, well, let's read together beginning in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached, I'm going to need to use my glasses. There's not enough light up here. Hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is all foretold in the Old Testament scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, 
though some have fallen asleep. If you don't trust me, go ask these other folks that saw the same things. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now there's a couple of fascinating things about this passage. One is that all New Testament scholars recognize that embedded in this letter is an early Christian creed. That is that part of this, Paul is not writing for the first time, but he's putting to pen and paper what is a common hymn or a common creed already in the early church. This thing about Jesus dying and rising on the third day, this, this is probably repeated as these Christians come together in the very early church. And over against the very modern belief that maybe this, this whole thing about Jesus claiming to be God and, and rising from the dead, rather than that being what actually happened, maybe the Gospels reflect a, a legend created later by the early church. And, and part of the, while that view is easily refuted on evidence and reasoning, part of that refutation is in this passage, in that we can date how early it was that the early church began to believe in the resurrection. Now, we know from, from a variety of evidences that this letter was written sometime between A.D. 54 and A.D. 57. So the letter itself is within, at most, 27 years of the events Paul's here talking about, the, the death of Jesus. Okay? But he refers to, in verse 1, to a time at which he preached these same things to the Corinthians. He was among them and told them the same things, including preached the resurrection. And interestingly enough, we can date exactly the time at which Paul was in Corinth. Because in Acts 12, verse 18, it refers to that year of Paul's being in Corinth as the time when a, when a Roman named Gallio was proconsul of Corinth. And we have archaeological evidence, which I was able to, to actually see at the beginning of last year, 2011, in, in the city of Delphi in, in Greece of an, an inscription that has Galileo's name on it that dates that year to A.D. 52. So Paul preached the resurrection of Jesus to the Corinthians in A.D. 52. Now we're within 20 years of the actual events. But Paul also refers here in verse 3 to having received that same message, those same ideas, that belief in resurrection at an even earlier time. And New Testament scholars, even skeptical ones, ones that are skeptical of the resurrection and the divinity of Jesus, by and large acknowledge that that receiving of this belief that Paul speaks of here occurred in somewhere between A.D. 33 and A.D. 35. And so we're right back now to within two to five years of the crucifixion. And so this belief in the bodily resurrection of Jesus dates all the way back to the very earliest teachings of the church within two to five years of, 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 the, of the events. And so there's, there's not nearly enough time for a series of legend to completely replace the truth because there's still so many eyewitnesses to these events alive, okay? Now, the other reason for talking about this today is because I'm teaching a, a Sunday school class, if you will, before church each week on the basic Christian beliefs, the essential doctrines of Christianity. 
And the one I talked about today was this one, the resurrection. And in it, I, uh, I'm trying not to overlap too much with my sermon here, but in it I took the time to go through a series of minimal facts that all New Testament scholars agree upon, even if they're skeptical about the conclusion or, or the explanation for those facts. A, a series of just 12 facts that all New Testament scholars acknowledge that, that Jesus died by crucifixion, that, that there's these believers who claim to have seen uh, his resurrected body, that, that it transformed their life, that it was central to the preaching, that many of them died because of belief in the resurrection. And I'm not going to do that here today. Uh, what I will do, though, is just say that the conclusion of all that is that the historical resurrection of Jesus is arguably the most airtight, defensible event in all of human history. And, and maybe we'll get there another way as, as, I, as I continue. But, but let me share just real briefly the, the life story of Lionel, Sir Lionel Luckhoo, who is in the Guinness Book of World Records as the most successful trial lawyer in all history. Operating in Suriname, Sir Lionel Luckhoo was successful as a defense lawyer, that is, demonstrating that the evidence wasn't complete enough to convict his client in 245 consecutive murder cases. So if there was ever anyone who could see problems with a set of evidence and find the loophole in the refutation, it was Sir Lionel Luckhoo. And he set out to debunk this Christian idea that, that Jesus rose from the dead. And it changed his life because his, his conclusion at the end of that research was that a man would be a fool to deny the proof of the resurrection of Jesus, the historical proof of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Okay? So I want to turn, so I'm not going to, do that proof now. You can get that in other ways. You can come to Sunday school class. You can take my class at the Kilns College, what have you. But I'm, I'm not going to take the time to do that now. What I want to turn to now is just some of the things that flow out of the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead in history. I'm going to refer to a bunch of scriptures here. Again, I'm not going to take the time to, to do the con context for each one. But, but write them down and, and then read them yourself this week. And the first, the first thing that flows out of this historical fact is that it proves the power of God. And, and the, scripture I, the scripture passage I want to use for that would be Ephesians 1, 17 through 20. And, and what Paul refers to in this letter to the Ephesians is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Okay? So the fact that there's power involved in raising Christ from the dead is a demonstration of God's power that also has implications for the power available to us, whether it's to combat justice or to transform our own lives or, or what have you. So the first implication is that the fact that Christ raised from the dead was raised from the dead demonstrates the immeasurable power of God. The second thing the resurrection did was to validate the teachings of Jesus, the earthly teachings and, and his claims to deity that he made while he was on earth prior to his death. In other words, if those claims were wrong, 
God the Father would not have raised him from the dead. When he did, in fact, raise him from the dead, it validated all of his teachings and his claim to divinity. So in Romans 1, 4, we have this. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. His resurrection from the dead proves him to be, declares him to be the Son of God. In Acts 2, through 24, we read that God raised Jesus from the dead because he could not do otherwise. It, it just simply wouldn't have worked to leave him in the grave given what he had done and who he was. And so God raised him from the dead. The third thing I want to share with you is that an implication of the resurrection is that Jesus will live forever. You remember, Jesus actually raised other folks from the dead in his earthly ministry. But they went on to die later. Lazarus and, and, and folks like that. But Jesus' resurrection was different. Jesus' resurrection proved that he will live forever. And we have that most clearly in Romans 6, 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And that's a clear implication of his resurrection. The fourth one I'll, I'll have to turn to because I want to read this passage to you. It's uh, Colossians 1, the first chapter of, of Paul's book to the Colossian church. And in verses 15 through 18 of the first chapter of Colossians, we read about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, Jesus, and for him. And incidentally, this is uh, a critical piece of what I shared at the Justice Conference, which was that the justice applied to the environment is also a critical call of Christians. That is, as those who are in relationship with the Creator, we of all people have the logical basis for being good stewards of the creation rather than abdicating that role to, to those who don't believe in God. Uh, but continuing in verse uh, 17, And he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So the fourth thing that I think flows logically out of the, his, the historicity of the resurrection is that the reality of God's kingdom on earth is now in place, with Jesus as the rightful king and ruler. We also get this concept in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, where because Jesus was obedient to the cross, the Father has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every con tongue confess that he is Lord. <clears throat> we also read this same concept, that the reality of the kingdom is now here, in Revelation 11:15, 15, 
in, in a scripture passage that was adopted by Handel in, in the writing of the Messiah, and which will be familiar to you, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You know, you know the song, right? Okay. The fifth, the fifth idea that flows logically out of the fact of the resurrection is this, that Jesus will one day judge the world. Am I still even on here at all? I guess I move my face too much. In Acts 10, 39 through 42, we read an, encapsulate, an encapsulization, much like our 1 Corinthians 15 passage, of the whole story of Jesus' life and what he accomplished. Uh, and then it goes on to say it, and that therefore we are commanded to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the world, the living and the dead, one day. In Acts 17:31, no, I just lost it. In Acts 17:31, we read that God has fixed a day on which. He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Remember, Jesus was fully man as well as fully God. And of this, he has given assurance of this idea that he will judge the world by a man. God has given assurance by raising that man from the dead, Acts 17.31. Sixthly, an implication of the resurrection of Jesus is that Christians are forgiven of their sins. Those who, those who accept his death on the cross on their own behalf are forgiven of their sins. In Romans 4, 23 through 25, Paul declares that our righteousness is made real because we believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead, who in turn was delivered over for our trespasses and raised for our justification, for our being declared right in the sight of God despite our own fallenness, our own sinfulness. And then another passage which, which declares this, that, that we are forgiven of our sins on the basis, not just of the death of Jesus, but of his resurrection, is the one we, we began with in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, where it says, if Christ is not raised, then we are still in our sins. We are unforgiven, if that is the case. The seventh thing I want to share with you that flows out of the resurrection is that followers of Jesus will receive new life, have received new life, do receive new life. Uh, John 11, 25, 26, Jesus himself declares before these events, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And that's the power that's made available to all of us, and that's the power to turn our backs on the old life and be raised with Christ into new life. In Romans 6, 4 through 5, it says that we are buried with Jesus in his death by baptism. That's what baptism symbolizes. We are buried with Jesus in, in death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might be raised in newness of life and life everlasting. In 1 Peter 1 through 3, it says we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So Jesus' resurrection is representative to all of us who follow 
him. And then the eighth and last thing that flows out of his historical resurrection is that those who are his followers will also one day be raised bodily, will receive glorified bodies just as he received a glorified body and appeared in it to his followers. In 1 Corinthians 6.14, it says very clearly that God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. We'll pass through this thing called physical death, but it should have no more sting and no more fear for us because it's just a transition. It's, it's a way through to real life and eternal life and new glorified bodies. And, and Jesus' resurrection is the exemplar and the uh, representative of that for us. Uh, this past, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44, say the same thing. And then in Philippians 3, 20 through 21, uh, we read, uh, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And, and this too is a great promise, especially to those of us who are entering the years in which our bodies are starting to fail us. Our minds begin to fail us. And so as we, we reach death in natural terms, we can look forward to the fact that our glorified bodies will not only return our bodies to a, to a state that was like when we were young and strong, but will we'll transcend that in marvelous and mysterious ways, that our minds and bodies in heaven will be far greater than than even those we had in the prime of this fallen life. Okay, so I want to come to a, a close here by sharing with you that, that this is not only the most important belief to the church, and it, it is that. The, the, the idea that Jesus rose from the dead and conquered death and offers the same for us is, in fact, the cornerstone of the Christian faith. It's the most important event in all of church history, if you will. It birthed the church. And I want you to think about that for a minute. The folks who were despondent and despairing and without hope after the crucifixion, they didn't have much going for them. Besides the fact that their leader had been humiliated and killed in an excruciating way by the authorities, they were uneducated fishermen belonging to a conquered race and, and that conquered by uh, uh, a nation that was powerful throughout the land. The Roman Empire was in charge and these uneducated fishermen and such were part of a, a very minor one of the races that the Romans had conquered. And yet it was belie their belief in resurrection that led these fishermen to start a movement which had more impact on our world than any other idea in the history of mankind. Okay? It began the church, sure, but this is the most important event in not just church history, but in human history. It was Christians who throughout the ensuing two millennia Wherever they went, taught people to read that they might read the good news. Wherever they went, they established orphanages and hospitals and universities and, and other places of learning, 
all the things that we consider to be good about civilization have mainly been brought to the world by Christianity. Okay? We now name our children after these guys, John and Matthew and Peter and Paul, and we name our dogs and cats after those Roman leaders, Caesar and Nero. The central event, not only of church history, but of all of human history, is the fact of the historical bodily resurrection from the grave of Jesus of Nazareth. But it's more than that. If we read scripture right, we understand that that event, that historical event, was planned from before God created the universe. We read in Ephesians uh, 1.4 that the Father chose us to be in Christ, quote, before the foundation of the world. Okay? We read the same idea in uh, 2 Timothy 1.9 where Paul is talking about the grace that we have in Christ Jesus, the mercy and grace, the forgiveness of sins, the being seen as holy enough to be with God. It's all through the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. And Paul says in 1 Timothy that that was planned from before the ages began. So from eternity past, if you will, everything was looking forward to the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross. Likewise, as we read in Revelation, in, in chapter 5, where there's a picture of eternity future, of heaven where it's, it's all peoples and all angels and, and all living things are gathered together and they're praising God and what the, the substance of their prayer, of, of their praise is that worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor and power and wisdom and might and all these things. So in eternity future, we will be looking back on this one historical event and giving it centrality. So the thing that we will celebrate in, in a few weeks at Easter time, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, is the most important historical event, not only in church history, not only in human history, but in all of cosmic history. It's the reason for the creation in the first place. And so maybe as we prepare for that celebration in a few weeks, we can just take home that centrality and chew on it and, and make it a part of who we are as followers of Christ. Okay? Father, we just uh, thank you this morning that we do live in a world, a broken world to be sure, one in which humanity's sin has, has caused... Uh, deep and powerful and, and universal injustices. But we live in a world that has been transformed in which all the difference has been made by the fact of your raising your son Jesus from the dead. That that fact uh, empowers us and, and motivates us and gives us reason to go on when we've lost those nearest and dear to us. Reason to hope for their being raised to eternal life. Reason to care not so much about our own earthly life when there's injustices around us, but to sacrificially turn our backs on earthly life to do right and promote justice and 
because we know that there's much greater life available to us now and forever. So we give you the glory, we give you the praise, we pray that we would uh, come to understand by the power of your Holy Spirit these things in deeper ways in the coming weeks, that as we celebrate the resurrection this year, that we would, we would be even more empowered and, and understand even clearer and better how much that has transformed the world in which we lived and ought to be the, the single most transforming uh, understanding of our, our lives personally and collectively. We pray it in Christ's name.